All right. We are studying the book of 2 Corinthians, so if you have your Bible or your electronic device, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is our eighth lesson out of ten, so we'll, we'll have two more lessons after uh, today. So you can mark that on your calendar and make your plans. And today's lesson is entitled, The Greatest Deal Ever Made. The Greatest Deal Ever Made. And in today's movie clip, we'll see uh, Kramer on Seinfeld makes a really good deal, really good investment. That's like one of my investments. <laughs> Can't wait to get away from it. All right. The story goes two farmers who were neighbors and good friends argued over the boundary line of their farms, their neighboring farms. One threatened to put up a fence where he thought the line ought to be, but the other one snuck out at night with a dozer and dug a ditch there and filled it with water. They were separated now, and their friendship seemed over. Finally, the first farmer decided to put up a wall in the ditch. I'll show him. So he hired a mutual friend of the two farmers, but instead the mutual friend had an idea, and he built a bridge across the ditch. The other farmer believed his neighbor had built it as a peace offering, so he offered to split the difference and meet on the bridge, and when they did, they embraced and they were reconciled. Jesus also built a bridge between us and God. The bridge of reconciliation that Jesus built allows an unholy person like me to be reconciled to a holy God. And that's what today's lesson is about. Paul is going to focus now in verse 14 on the ministry of reconciliation that we have been the recipients of, of course. And he's going to, this, this, the context of this is, remember last week we talked about the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. And so now uh, he's going to say, okay, because we are going to be judged and we are expected, we've got a stewardship to represent Christ and serve him now, and we're going to be judged by how we serve, uh, we have a motivation. And so he's going to go through our motivation uh, because we have the fear of God and know we're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And as well, we recognize the awesome love that God has for us. And so we naturally want to serve him and, and, and do good deeds for him now while we're here in the flesh. Uh, and we also realize that the Spirit of God has indwelt us and is leading and guiding us to do that. So you have these three forces, these three motivations at work all at the same time. And so he's going to talk about the uh, impact that that love of God had in, the, in reconciling him to ourselves. So reconciliation is kind of the focus of today's lesson. And it's important to understand the relationship uh, between the, the various words that are used between forgiveness and reconciliation. Most people kind of confuse those two. 
You know, uh, I'm sure if, if you're like me, you've had periods of time where uh, there was someone that had wronged you and uh, you had a very difficult time in forgiving them. And quite often uh, you could say, uh, I can't forgive them, right? Uh, and so you need to recognize the, the great difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness just takes one person to just let it go and forget about it, you know, to forgive somebody. But to actually be reconciled, it takes both people and there must be recompense. In other words, the crime or the debt must be paid for there to be re reconciliation, right? Um, and so that's, that's the difference. So when we say we can't forgive, actually you can but you may not be able to be reconciled because that would take uh, the person who offended to actually pay the damages or to in some way make it right what he has done wrong, you see. Uh, and so uh, it, what he's talking about today is not just forgiveness. We're very aware of the forgiveness of our sin, but he's also talking about the fact that we were alienated from God, but now God has taken the initiative to bring us back. He's built that bridge that the story talked about and crossed the chasm so we can now be reconciled to God. So let's talk for a little bit about reconciliation and uh, what it means. First of all, we got to establish the problem is our need. We need reconciliation because we are alienated. Why are we alienated? The Bible says uh, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and uh, the Greek word for fallen short is really cool. And it's quite often translated in the New Testament. Uh, fallen short is, all, is quite often uh, translated sin. But really what it means in Greek is missing the mark. And so it's like God put up a target that you've got to hit, like an archery target. There's a bullseye, and you have to hit it to be on his side, to be in a relationship with him. And we have missed the mark. That's the idea. So when, it, when we translate it, have fallen short of the glory of God, we've missed the mark is what it literally says which is a great image because, you know, when you think of that bullseye that God requires you to hit, I'm uh, amazed at how many people, you know, would say, I'm great, I'm cool, I, I do it right, I obey, I do great good deeds, I'm a good person. But you know what they're doing? They're shooting their arrows and then they're painting a bullseye around the arrow. That's what they're doing. That's how they somehow think they qualify or that they've met the standards of God. And also, they have this in their mind. They are comparing themselves to other people. And naturally, we all, you know, are, are uh, very critical in our analysis of other people, and usually rightfully so. But... Uh, God is not going to judge us in relationship to other people. We're not going to be graded on the curve. <laughs> We're going to be graded on 
God's standard. And you can think of that perfect holy standard of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is God's holy, righteous standard. And, of course, no one so far has ever been able to keep the Ten Commandments. If you're thinking, well, I haven't murdered anybody or uh, it's been a long time since I committed adultery or something like that. Uh, let me draw your attention to number 10. Because number 10 is the one that Paul grabbed. If you remember in Romans 7, Paul said, uh, I never really knew what sin was until I wrestled with the concept of the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. So that mean, literally that means desire. You shall not desire you know, something that's not yours. And, uh, of course, we've all done that multiple times, probably every day of our life. You know, you've wanted something else, something more, something better, or something that someone else had, right? And so Paul said, I've worked as hard as I can, and I cannot keep that Tenth Commandment. I find the members of my body desiring all the time. I want, and uh, I just beg God to help me. Who will free me from the body of this death? I can't keep this command. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I find the members of my body wanting and doing something else. So, uh, obviously, Paul, and of course, who here can say they're better than the Apostle Paul? No one. And Paul's saying, I've failed miserably in keeping the law. I fall short. I miss that target. And because we've missed that target then we have this great need because it has caused us to be alienated, estranged from the living God who resides in this gloriousness and in absolute holiness and cannot be in the presence of sin. So something must be done about it for us to be reconciled to the Lord. Something has to be done for us because we can't do it ourselves. So the cost necessary is too high for us to pay. The bar is too high for us to jump over. The price is too much for us to pay. Only God could pay it. So the mediator that brings us together, the one that we could say built the bridge for us to come to God, is his son. Verse 18 says, all these things are from God. All of the reconciliation is accomplished by God. It's initiated by Him, and it's accomplished by Him. He is the mediator. And the instrument of reconciliation that God used is Jesus Christ. The death of Christ on the cross was that atoning work that we needed to pay for pay the price for our sin. And so Christ on the cross is how God accomplished it. And the cost was Christ's death. The method Christ offered up as our substitute. That's the method. He is our substitute taking upon himself the death that we deserve. All of our sins are put on him and his righteousness is given to us. The result of reconciliation is a new relationship with God that Paul's going to talk about in today's lesson. We're new people. 
We're not the old person who lived for themselves, but because we're in this new relationship, we're new people, spiritual people, alive in Christ, back reconciled to God in a relation, spiritual relationship with him again. The response required from us, though, is to put our complete faith and belief and trust in Christ, in that work of Christ on the cross. That's who we are and what we're about now. Uh, and so what about, where do we go from here? What about, what's the new life that we lead then? We're, we're going to be told, and it's true, we are now then ambassadors for Christ. Now that God's love has been expressed to us and we have received it and we're new people and His Spirit indwells us, we represent Him on earth. As Paul said uh, in last week's lesson, he has an ambition. In verse 10, he says, well, excuse me, uh, in verse 9, he says, Our ambition, whether at home or absent, is to be pleasing to him. So now we have a stewardship as representatives to be pleasing to him, to represent him well, to make him look good. That's what we're about now. That's the life, the new life that we lead as ambassadors for Christ, his representatives. And, and you know, it sounds like a pretty tough job, but the New Testament is clear that the burden is light. We're free. It's no longer an obligation. When you were maybe living under some kind of code of ethics or some kind of rule of law that you were trying to keep, it was burdensome. And it was too heavy a burden. You couldn't carry a load that heavy. But Christ has taken that burden upon himself, and now we are free to represent him. And so it's no longer an obligation. It's something that you actually desire to do, you want to do. As he's going to say in verse 14 in today's lesson, the love of Christ controls us. Because Christ loves us so great, we're, we're just naturally motivated to want to serve him and represent him is the idea. So he didn't burden us with some duty or some obligation. We're free. But instead, he blessed us with an opportunity. He blessed us with an opportunity. He could, do, he could uh, send the gospel around the whole world in any way he saw fit. But he has chosen to use us, as weak and pitiful and lazy as we are. He has chosen to bless us with this opportunity to represent him now while we're alive and serving him. Uh, one last question, though, talking about reconciliation. Can you be reconciled on your own terms? In other words, is this the only way? Is through Christ the only way? And that's an important question because in polls, over 50% of Christians, not just people, but over 50% of Christians think, believe, that you can be saved in any number of ways. You know, just pick one. Just as long as you have some faith, any faith. What faith? That's enough faith. Are you serious? But that's what they think. They think, well, other people live in other parts of the world, so therefore they have a different kind of faith, and God will honor that faith. 
Well, how many times have we said, and how obvious is it, that the object of your faith is all important? The object of your faith is all important. What good does it do you to have faith in error or untruth? And if you've, I took the course in comparative religion, and I know that all these religions are mutually exclusive. They exclude each other. They clearly say you can't believe this and that. Either this is true or that is. They can't both be true. So the question again, can you be reconciled on your own terms? No way. God has taken the initiative. It's God's way. We act like, well, we make the way. You know, the people in China have their way, we have our way, you know, or whatever. No, God makes the way. He takes the initiative. If you can read, you can see that clearly. God makes the way. So there's only His way. So reconciliation is not about what man does. It's what man receives from God. That's the difference. Everybody thinks it's about what we do and what we accomplish and what we merit, but it's truly about what God has done for us and we receive it by faith. That's called grace. The grace of God is what he has done for us. I like that acrostic. I'm sure you've seen it uh, for grace, G-R-A-C-E, G, God's, R, riches, A, at, See Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. We were poor, and now we're spiritually rich. But it was at Christ's expense. It was accomplished by Him. He was the instrument of our reconciliation. All right? So, uh, pick it up in verse 14. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, the greatest deal ever made. You can't miss this. It's the greatest deal. And as I said last week, we read the Bema Seat Judgment where Jesus will review our lives since we accepted Christ as Savior. And we will all be expected to give an account of our service or lack thereof on that judgment day. And so now I end this section, uh, verse 14 through 21. Paul lays out why we should live our life serving Christ. It's just logical now, based on what he's done for us and based on the fact that we're, held, we're going to be held responsible at the Bema Seat Judgment, that we would want to serve Christ. Uh, because we have received the greatest deal ever made, surely now we'll step up and freely take this stewardship and represent him well. So verse 14, Paul starts out with, For, since all that was true, for the love of Christ, now this is Christ's love, not our love, because if you read that one way, you can say, so he's saying, since we love Christ, we do this. No, it's in the context of his love for us that motivates us, you see, because his love for us is what reconciled us, his act of love. So the love of Christ controls us. We're motivated. We're moved by what Christ has done for us, lovingly has done for us. And we conclude this, 
having experienced that love, we conclude this, that one died for all, Christ died for all of us, therefore we should all die. Meaning that we should be dead to that old person, that old Charlie that used to be selfish and only live for himself and think about himself all day long should now leave that, that guy behind. He should be past tense and the new guy should seek to represent Christ, seek to be, as Paul said in verse 9, pleasing to Christ. That should be the new guy. And so that's what he's talking about Therefore, all died. In a sense, that old person died when Christ died for us. And verse 15, so it's an idea of substitution. He died for all. He was our substitute. That they who live, that we are now physically living, since he died for us and we are still physically living, what should we do? We should no longer live for ourselves. Since we're new people and we've experienced God's love, we should now live for him who died and rose again on our behalf. And I can't help but remember Galatians 2.20 when Paul wrote, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's the idea of being a new person. And Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. Therefore, because this is true, verse 16, because this is true, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, being an apostle, they saw Christ in the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. What he's saying there, when his assessment of Christ changed, that he was more than just a man, he was God in the flesh, and he died on the cross for us. When that assessment of his came into being, so did his assessment of everyone else. Then he began to look at people differently as well, as people who need Jesus as a Savior that we have access to, right? You have relationships. You have people that you're in contact with all the time. And so uh, the most common form of evangelism, of course, and I think the most effective form of evangelism is relational, relationship evangelism, how you affect your family and friends and the people around you. And uh, that's, that's something that we're all gifted to do. I think some people have a special gift for evangelism that can go out and be missionaries or they can cold call, knock on doors and stuff. Uh, they're amazing. I've been on mission trips with them, and I'm blown away, you know. Uh, one of the mission trips I went on, you know, I spent six hours talking to, went to three different houses and spent six hours talking to the three people in those houses. And, boy, I thought I'd really done something, you know. Uh, two out of three actually came to Christ, you know. So I'm fired up. Well, we get back to lunch and meet with the rest of the group, and they go around, you know, what happened. One guy, you know, he had a group of 100 people come to Christ. And went, holy cow, I'm a complete failure. <laughs> but no, that, that's not it at all. That guy obviously has what I would call the gift of evangelism. 
I mean, it's amazing, and it's great. But God has not given that gift to all of us, but he's called all of us to have these relational type, uh, this relational type evangelism, I think. And we all have the life we lead and the environment that we're in and all the people we know. Um, so that's, that's what he's doing here. That's what he's talking about. We all uh, should be motivated by the love of Christ to represent him well to everybody that we know now. Relational evangelism. So verse 17, he says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ... He's a new creature, a new person. The old person uh, was selfish. The new person seeks to represent Christ and serve him, not themselves. So the old things have passed away. And behold, new things have come. I'm a new person, and I live differently. I have different desires, new desires, a new heart, uh, a new purpose, and new meaning in my life. So I'm a new, a new in that sense. And verse 18, now all these things are from God. God has accomplished the reconciliation. Because of God, we're new people. We're forgiven because of what God has done. All these things are from God. Who, what did, what did he do again? He reconciled us to himself. We were alienated, we were estranged, and God took the initiative and did what was necessary so that we could be reconciled. So all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. That was accomplished, Christ on the cross. And then he gave us, after we were reconciled, he then gave us a ministry. What ministry? The ministry of reconciliation. So he said, now that you've been reconciled, I'm going to give you a stewardship to go out and represent me. As, Christ, as Paul said in verse 9, to be pleasing, to live a life pleasing to God, to make him look good and represent him well. So uh, we've been given this ministry of reconciliation. Um, Verse 18 and 19 says, namely, he's going he's to now, uh, he's going to define it, verse 19, namely that God was in Christ. What is that ministry? That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So they're completely forgiven. It's like it never happened. And he has then committed to us the word of reconciliation. So what is he saying there since we have all fallen short and all ascend uh, and we have a chasm between us, a wall between us and God and we're alienated and estranged but God has bridged that, bridged that chasm, knocked down that wall by what he has done through Christ, and God has made peace with us. And since God made us the greatest deal ever, he's now given us a stewardship, which is the ministry of reconciliation. It's not so much a responsibility as it is a privilege, a blessing that he has given to us. 
He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. We are his ministers on planet earth, his ambassadors, he's going to say in verse 20. So we have a new identity. You know, back in the old days, way back in the Middle Ages, some of us were back there. Not really. But way back then, names had a real meaning, right? I mean, like the name Miller or any, you know, pick one, Taylor, you know, made clothes. I mean, you could go on and on. Every name had a meaning. Or the meaning was that you were somebody's son, like Nelson or Williamson or, or you know, Every name had a meaning, and you had an identity then that came with that name. And so you can kind of understand what he's saying here. You have a new identity being in Christ. You're a new person because when somebody now asks you, who are you? Tell us about yourself. Identify yourself. You know, you're sometimes in groups, so they make you stand up and do that. And uh, I was in a Bible study one time, and the guy tricked us like that. Tell us a little something about yourself. Tell us who you are, who, what your identity is. And, and so we'd stand up, and people always say, well, I'm in the real estate business, and I'm a father, and I'm married, and I have, you know, this many children, and I do this, that, and the other. And he goes, wrong. This is a Bible study. You are an ambassador for Christ. That is your identity. And it, you know, it was a trick. But it made its, he made his point, right? He made his point. We normally think of ourselves in relation to what we do and what we've accomplished or, you know, that we're married or have children or whatever. But in God's eyes now, he sees us in this relationship. And our real identity is as an ambassador to Christ. That's a new identity that we have being in Christ, in this being new people. So he says in verse 20, Therefore, because all this is true, we've been reconciled, and God has given us this stewardship. Therefore, who are we now? We are ambassadors for Christ. And what is an ambassador? It's a great image that he uses because an ambassador represents someone greater than himself. And the ambassador brings the message from that one that's greater than himself to other people. And he represents, you know, back in his day, it was the emperor of Rome. The ambassadors came with a message from the emperor. And they represented him, not themselves. And so now we have that identity as ambassadors for Christ, representing him. And it's as though... God, using us, we're entreating through us. What does the word entreat mean? We don't normally, I can't ever remember using that word. But it's an interesting word. I looked it up in the dictionary. It means beg. That kind of blows your mind. You normally don't beg anybody to do anything. I'm not a beggar. But this is so important. It's so awesome that Paul's saying, I'd be willing to get out on my knees and beg them. He even says in Romans 10, he says, I'd be willing to give up my own soul for my fellow countrymen if they would just 
come to Christ. Wow! That's saying a lot, isn't it? So he's willing to beg, entreat them to come to Christ, to be reconciled to Christ. And then he says it, using a different word, translated beg, we beg you or we beg people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That's the ministry. We go out, represent him, and beg people to come to Christ and be reconciled because we know how important that is. And of course, what did God do that's so important, that's so awesome, that would make us be willing to beg people to come and believe? What did God do? Look at verse 21. God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, God made Jesus who knew no sin. He was the only sinless person that ever lived, the only perfect person. He made him to be sin. And your word there, to be sin, should be in italics because it doesn't literally mean it's the best translation, uh, I guess, that they could give there based on the Greek. But what it really means, of course, obviously he just said Christ was sinless, so he can't be sin, he can't become sin. What it's really saying is God made Jesus the object of his justice against sin. God treated Jesus as if he were a sinner by imputing all of our sin to him, putting all of our sin on Jesus. So that's what it really says there. He didn't make him actually become sin. He made him the object of his wrath against sin, you see. So God treated Jesus as if he were a sinner and now treats us as if we're righteous. Unbelievable. So what's the deal? We said this is the greatest deal ever. Uh, everybody likes a good deal. You go shopping, you want a good deal, right? What's the deal here? Why, in what sense is this the greatest deal ever? Well, think about it. God credits our sin to Jesus' account, and God credits Jesus' righteousness to our account. It's like a flat, broke, busted real estate guy goes into a closing and then somehow comes out rich. That's called a real estate broker. <laughs> but think about that. It is the greatest deal ever. All of our sins are on him and his righteousness is now counted by God as ours greatest deal ever. There's a great uh, biblical illustration of that that we'll close with. It's the story of Philemon. And I hope when you uh, go home today, you'll read that. It's, one, it's a New Testament book, Philemon. It's very short. It's one of the shortest books. Uh, Philemon. And it tells the story. Paul has written a letter. Paul's in prison in Rome. And he writes a letter to a friend of his who's in Asia Minor in the, in the city of Colossae, which the book of Colossians, the church there at Colossae, was, uh, that letter was written to them. And Paul has this guy that he has led to Christ named Philemon. And so he's got this great relationship, and Philemon loves Paul because he led him to Christ and changed his life. So the letter is concerning a bond slave named Onesimus. 
Onesimus was a bond slave owned by Philemon. What's a bond slave? Uh, it's someone who is in such debt. Now, the, today, you know, obviously we have bankruptcy laws to protect, to keep this from happening. But back in those days, if you had a debt that you could not pay, you literally sold yourself as a bond slave. You sold yourself into slavery for a certain amount of time, in order, depending on how big the debt was. And so you became completely owned by that master, and he controlled everything about you and had every right over you. And so it's, as you read the letter, you see that Onesimus, the slave, stole from his master Philemon and then fled to Rome about a thousand miles. And as incredible good fortune would have it, or it could have been the providence of God, Onesimus crosses path with Paul because Paul is under house arrest so he can meet with people and, and talk to people. And so somehow Onesimus is converted by Paul. And now he's got a quandary. I'm a new person in Christ. I want to represent Christ well. So how can I make this debt I have to Philemon go away? What do I do, Paul? Help me here. Paul says, I just happen to know that guy. <laughs> I'll write a letter. And so Paul writes this letter to encourage Philemon to forgive Onesimus and receive him home and be reconciled. And in the letter Paul wrote, receive him as you would receive me. If he owes you, put that on my account. I'll pay it. Impute it to me. Paul was willing to pay the bill that Onesimus couldn't pay so that Onesimus could be reconciled to Philemon. In the same way, God credits our sin to Jesus' account and God credits his righteousness to our account. And that really is the greatest deal ever made. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with this message, this ministry of reconciliation that you drew us to yourself. You took the initiative and made peace and brought us together in a new intimate relation, spiritual relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray now that you would continue to motivate us to go out and represent you well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.